0: At the start of the week and plenty from the day's radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moore and then here's what you might have missed.
1: Memory is a funny thing. Yeah. I mean, people don't remember the beginning of the pandemic in the same way and that's yeah. very recent history. So they sit people down decades after an event and get their get their recollections. I mean, there's seven or eight people who claim they raised the flag over the GPO. They couldn't all have done it.
2: Isn't that amazing? <laughs> but it's, it's extraordinary that that happens with memory. Adding things like brick dust to, to, to red coloured spices. It can be industrial dyes. Fraud is rife in that very very complex and high-value uh, international trade. It's what is
3: spiritual retreat?
4: It's going to Donegal and being on your own. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's going into, OK, I'll give you a better right. go into the, the room within your own heart and close the door yeah, and so pray there to your father, who is God, and he will hear you.
0: And we'll start with the live line and the victims and families of victims of serial sex offender Slavomir Gierlovskiy.
5: People should remember the name Slavomir Gierlowski, but unfortunately they don't. Uh, his name should be as notorious in Ireland as the likes of Larry Murphy, um, because uh, Slavomir Gierlowski was is one of the most uh, savage serial sex offenders ever to emerge in Ireland. And uh, last week, uh, last Monday, he was in court again. Uh, appealing uh, part of a sentence which was rejected. Uh, he was um, He's attacked five women in South Dublin. He was on the rampage for nearly four or five years. They were savage, premeditated uh, sexual attacks. Uh, we'll talk to Ruth in a sec, uh, Ruth Maxwell, who's been highlighting this case. She was one of his victims, highlighting this case and uh, making sure his this man's name and this man's sentence is fully, fully, Abided by. Um, But I want to talk to Keith because Keith has never spoken before publicly. But Keith, your wife was also a victim of Gierloski.
6: Yes, Joe. Hi, how are you?
5: Good, thanks. Good, thanks.
6: Yes, no, my wife was attacked. Um, I I believe that she was the second victim um, of Vladimir's. So we went through a trial about three to four years later and it came that there wasn't enough evidence. So the other women that were attacked, the Mm -hmm. evidence, obviously the the detectives gathered more evidence, and that's how he was convicted of my wife's attack.
5: And do you want to tell us your your memory of what happened to to your wife? Yes,
6: I I remember it like yesterday. Um, My wife had just had a, a newborn baby, and he was 11 weeks old, and I was working from home, mm-hmm. and she just said, look, can I stay in for an hour if she goes out for a walk? And the the, the park was next door to our house, okay. and I said yes. And she rang me about 25 minutes later, screaming on the phone, saying she's been attacked, told me the location, so I actually I jumped into her car, and I had to leave the baby locked in the house and went next door, and I found her with about six or eight People around her, mm. and she was on all fours, and she just looked up at me when I pulled up, and she was covered in blood.
5: And what? What had happened? What time of day or night was this, Keith?
6: It was about 11 o'clock in the morning, quarter okay, wow. past 11 in the morning. Broad daylight. She was daylight. out for a walk. Broad, broad daylight. daylight. Yeah,
5: South Dublin. And okay.
6: South Dublin. Yes, in in Ballymount Park there. Okay. And she was out, there'd be a huge amount of walkers there. It's, it's a small little park within one area. There's only one way in of the estate and one way out. It's okay. all, there's only about a thousand houses there locally and everybody knows, you know, nearly mm-hmm. everybody. So she went out for a walk and he tried to attack her with a flex and tried to strangle her. I got so the, the two of them ended up on the ground. He got back up, tried to put the flex over her neck, couldn't get it over. Which she is a, ca- was... a
5: cable toy, is it? What was he using? No, it
6: was like a flex off okay. a cable. Okay,
5: okay, okay, oh my God.
6: And I actually had it in my hand when, because when, one, of, one of the um, the walker, boy, passer boys handed it to me and said that's what he tried to attack her with, he tried to put it around the neck and tie it. So they ended up, or my wife ended up on her back and Vladimir was trying to choke her down with his hands and she could feel herself passing out and screaming and then he just, he probably hit her about 10 or 15 times. I've been in court with this guy a number of times and he's a big, big man. I'm six foot and he'd be probably about six foot four and about 18 stone of pure athleticism. A big, big guy. So he just, he probably hit her about 12 or 15 times, fractured her jaw, fractured her nose, burst her two eyes, burst her nose and burst her lips. My God. It was like somebody painted her face and her T-shirt she had on at the time red.
5: And was she able to tell you, obviously if you're you're trying to get help in an ambulance, was she able to tell you what happened?
6: Yes. She could tell me everything. She even described um, Vladimir to exactly how he looks like. Um, a foreign look about him, kind of a yellow skin, skinhead, big, big, musly guy. Um, definitely, definitely goes to the gym and works out. Wow. And it was it's, it's the description of what she described is exactly the way I seen him in court.
5: And Keith, the, the the aftermath of of this, your wife was obviously taken to hospital.
6: She was taken to hospital. I was taken to hospital. I had swabs of my mouth and my fingers and so on. The police mm. had to swab me and do everything. To me, they said because there is domestics that can happen, and you can yeah, just yeah. send your wife into the park, and that's that's what they said. Some people do. So um, we had to go through all that, and she didn't sleep properly or eat for days and turned into weeks and months until we just had to sell the house and um, move, move out where she grew up and where her whole family is from. Because of the attack? Yeah.
0: And Joe asked Keith if Slavomir Gierlovsky tried to conceal his identity during the attack in broad daylight.
6: No. Well, where he was actually in the park, I'm not from the area, so yeah. I don't know that the park well, but after the attack in the next couple of days, I kind of had a walk around and he was in, there was the only bushes, there was a big cavity in these bushes for where you could walk into. Obviously, young children were, you know, drinking or whatever there. You could see a few cans of beer and it's where they used to hang out, you know, secretly, but that's where he was. He was waiting inside there, I'd say, to to grab my wife, strangler and bring her into the bushes, but fortunately he failed.
5: And the guard, he obviously kept in touch with you
6: yeah, they did. The detectives were there. Now, there must have been about eight to ten police cars. There was a helicopter. There was a tent put over where she was attacked. It was it was the biggest crime scenes I've ever seen. But to be involved in it is, is very, you know, realistic.
5: And, Keith, I presume the reason why the guard he took it, because he had he had attacked before and he attacked again, didn't he?
6: Yes, he did, yeah. I believe my wife was the second victim, what we have been told by the detectives, and he went on and carried out another three violent attacks. Now he tried to tried to pull my wife's trousers down a few times, and fortunately enough, he didn't manage. Yeah, yeah. But he's a dangerous, dangerous man.
5: Yes. And what was it when you went into court last Monday, Keith?
6: I was in court with the detectives. My my wife can't can't do it anymore because she'll just bring it all back, and she yeah. won't be able to sleep or eat again. And um, so I went in to represent my wife and. He wouldn't. He doesn't even look anywhere. He just, he just looks and just. Well, he. I think he picks a spot in the wall. Just looks at it. Yeah. But when he was handed, he was handed a uh, mandatory life sentence of fifteen years. And then, but all because he's re so for so long, there, there's, there's he needs to be rehabilitated. So he was four and a half years from this and three and a half years. I don't, don't understand this. judicial system. But there's law enforcement that you know to try to rehabilitate prisoners so he got away with a, a number of years nine years in total but, but he didn't st- bat an eyelid. he got the, the, the life sentence and this went down to the six he didn't even blink
5: oh god now he would be the longest serving prisoner he is currently the longest the prisoner with the longest sentence in the Irish prison system yeah. because even though people would not be familiar, I think, with his name, the, the, the way they should be.
0: Well, that's Keith there. Then Joe spoke to another woman who sustained life-changing injuries after Gerlovsky attacked her as she walked to work. This is Ruth Maxwell.
7: Wow, it is just very tough listening to one of the other women's experiences being told through through the. Husband, and you just sound so loving, so caring, so supportive. And I really, really hope that she can find some peace after last week. I really, really do. See, she couldn't have anybody better than you standing by her and supporting her.
5: Thank you. Uh, and Ruth, um, do you w- were you a victim of Slavomir Gieloski? Um We have a photograph of him. It's, it's not. It's 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 in the Irish Times, and we asked for their permission to. To get it out there again, do do you were you a victim before or after Keith's wife? Do you know Ruth?
7: I was the final victim. You were the
5: final victim. Okay. Uh, This is what uh, tragically for you, but uh, for the case made made a difference. Uh, Do you want to tell us, Ruth, your your your, um, choice about how much detail you want to go in But was it was it very similar to what happened to Keith's wife?
7: It well. Oh, dear, I, I wouldn't have suffered the same injuries. Okay. Um, I In my eyes here, I am going, oh, my God, his poor wife, they sound absolutely horrific, yeah. way, way more intense than, than what I suffered. Um, although I know my my physical injuries are for the rest of my life, they're, they're never mm-hmm. never going to get any better. But I was just walking down to catch the Lewis to go to work. And What time? I was it was about 20 to 7 in the morning. Okay. And it was sunny. I was yeah. listening to music. Daylight, um,
8: yeah.
7: Yeah. Uh, it was just, I'll never forget what a beautiful day it was. And I was passing through a smaller pedestrian area and I looked to the side. I was passing a white van and I did get a shudder, but I said to myself, no, I've seen that before. It's all right. And I continued on, but I looked behind me again as I was going a bit further down
2: okay. and nothing.
7: I say I looked twice or three times and nothing. And next thing the, the arms came around me, there was a knife to my um, chin on my right side, so mm-hmm. I was incapacitated on that side. And then my left hand side, he had a cloth in his hand, but I had my thumb up under my handbag on my shoulder,
8: okay. so
7: he couldn't get that arm properly around me. I was using my elbow to fend to him off,
8: okay.
7: and um. The, it went on like that for a few minutes, and I, I just knew. I was like, oh, shit, this is serious. Oh, apologies yeah. for cursing. No, but, um, and then he moved the, the knife from my chin right down to my throat, and I just knew. I just knew. So I pulled my thumb out from under my, my handbag and yeah. just grabbed the blade of the knife with my fingers and pulled it as hard as I could down. And started screaming at the top of my voice. And as I turned around to him, he just turned and ran off.
5: And did he say anything to you?
7: Nothing. Nothing. And his vacant stare was, was yeah. just empty. There was nothing. And but off he, he ran. He,
5: he came at you from behind.
7: Yeah, I would think probably more to the side. Okay. It was a little. Um, and he wasn't. He there. wasn't
5: wearing a face covering, or
7: no, nothing, nothing. And it was only afterwards that it had transpired that um, he had cable ties and duct tape at the scene. Yeah. And, yes, there there was the discussion whether I, I was meant to survive that attack or not. Um. But it's not where, where I like to bring my head.
5: Yeah, I don't. Like to, yeah, 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 I
7: yeah. like to think, no, I got okay, away. Okay, so
5: he's attacked you from behind. It's uh, broad daylight, early in the morning. You're walking to the loo. Was there anyone around, Ruth?
7: No, no. So I had to run through this shorter laneway um, out onto a main road and there was nobody stopping. Um, so I had to start waving my hands and screaming. Mm. And a lovely guy called Paul pulled over and got out and he was walking towards me. But as he was, there was a van that stopped and a guy opened the door and said, I'm just going to round around about I'll be around to you now. And he came around and he got out and he thought that Paul was my boyfriend and he was oh. actually to be, uh, beat me up. So was it?
1: Yeah.
7: yeah, I actually received a, a lovely message from Greg the other day Great. just saying Great. that if only I was 10 minutes earlier, Why he know? said, I'll be haunted for the rest of my life over that. I said, you can't. I said, because if you were 10 minutes earlier, you wouldn't have been there for me when you were.
5: So, so the two men came to your aid And where where is, uh, geographically at this stage, is he back in his van and gone?
7: He's back in the van and gone and when I was in court looking at the CCTV I could actually see the whole thing transpire as to where where he went and just thinking, wow, I, I was in the hospital then and my life had just changed forever.
0: And Ruth explained how the attack changed her life forever.
7: Yeah, like when I was running down that laneway after I'd pulled the knife because I had to pull it so hard. Yeah. Um, Like it, it kind of went off my face and my eye. So when I was running down that laneway with my right hand, I was feeling my neck and my chin and my eye. I didn't know had he cut my neck or my face, but I yeah. didn't particularly care because it's only, you know, it's only whatever my face and all that. It wouldn't have bothered me if I had been scarred or anything like that. I'm not that kind of person. But um, I, so I had no idea, like the extent of, of yeah. what he had done. I just knew that my my hand was in serious trouble, and it was projectile blood coming out everywhere. And yeah.
5: And the guardie came quickly, I presume, given the nature yeah. But plans.
7: an ambulance had come already, oh, great. so okay. I had gone off to to the hospital, and then the the Gardaí came, and then they arrived at the hospital, detectives, and I could hear one a lovely woman on the phone beside me, obviously getting an update from the scene and I could hear cable ties and duct tape and I broke down, absolutely broke down. You it didn't... was kind of the realisation of, of what was going to happen. Yeah.
5: But then you, you, you managed, uh, if my memory is correct, me for the evidence, you managed to to give details to the Gardaí which about the van.
7: Yes, I knew it was a white van and I had seen it several times. Okay. So the detectives then went door to door right. and it turned out as well that one of the houses, the cottages along there had CCTV on the outside so they were able to follow the van the whole way along. was
0: not that brilliant?
7: So parked up right outside his house. Yeah. And he I remember in a court he, that he, day he, alone he, and crying.
5: He lived in Drimna. And just a, yeah, a suburban Road. A suburban life in Drimna.
7: Yeah,
5: and if yeah. my again, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, he he simply would disappear from the family home and tell his wife or whatever that he was going back to Poland when he was committing I mean, these crimes. But he was actually renting well, a room. Yeah, renting a room apparently in a hotel. And I've go- never heard and, any and, of course. And going in, Well, anyway, that's that's one piece I heard. Uh, well it's 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 an incredible scenario. An incredible scenario. So how was it he was they you managed you said you'd spotted the van before, which is a brilliant yeah. piece of observation. Yeah. Well, the white van.
7: Yeah, and, and, and you t- you knew it was neighbors. the same
5: van, yeah.
7: Yeah, and no, other neighbours had seen a van before and actually a neighbour had a partial reg or something.
5: Oh brilliant. Um
7: so it it really was the van that that would have led to Yeah. To find in him, and obviously then there was DNA samples at the scene, which then matched his DNA to all of the, the previous four attacks.
5: And and but to, to, back, to back to Keith, isn't Keith? Isn't that how the circle was completed? That when they got DNA from the van, they were able to match the DNA to to whatever was found near your wife's attack.
6: Yes, there was partial fingerprints on the flex, the cable flex. And there was semen found where he attacked my wife in the bushes. So he was obviously in there himself, looking to, waiting there for a victim. And there was fingerprints found on his cigarette box left at the scene also. My God.
5: And, Ruth, did you see this man in court?
7: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
5: And what What was his demeanour?
7: Well, obviously, the during the trial in 2018, I mean, he just... He kind of looked handsome. He looked tanned and toned. And I hadn't realised he was so tall. I'm not great with height, but I hadn't realised that. But I knew, like, he was Hmm. fit and he was military trained. And he just looked... ..just looked like somebody who was just a normal, everyday person. who Hadn't a care in the world sitting there in the box. But obviously that changed then... When I saw him just at the end of May this year for the final part of the appeal, where he just looked the complete opposite.
0: And Ruth spoke about her injuries.
7: In three of my fingers, the tendons were severed on, on three of them. And yeah. then two of them would have ruptured. There was a pulley gone and another. I mean, the the, the details of your fingers are are so complex. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I've had them reattached. Now, I've had very bad problems presently mm-hmm. with with my hand and my arm. It's extremely painful. Okay. Um, but I know a lot about it and how to help myself. Um, Like, it's going to be like that for the rest of my life, so I have to find my own means of pain management. Okay. But my GP did say, well, OK, we we'll, might consider referring you back and maybe there's a surgery you could have. And I just went, no, no. Because that brings me completely back to where I can't manage myself at all. And mm. I can't go back into that. I'd rather try lots of different holistic things that, you know, that can ease it.
5: And you heard Keith there. I did, says, yeah. I'm, I'm still in total I know, shock, I know, I know. know. And it's the first time he's, 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 he's his family has actually spoken about this. But Ruth, um, Keith said himself and his wife and his young family had to move because of this even though this man is going to be in prison for a long time. What effect did it have on you? You've mentioned the the life-changing injuries he he inflicted on your hand, for example, with the knife. But how how are you psychologically and mentally after this savage attack?
7: Well, for me, it's a case of each day at a time because I I can't get away from it. Like, I could be doing something, let's say, I could be in in the sea swimming, and I'm thinking... Oh, I can forget about it now for a little while. I could be up a mountain, I could be doing something. But I can't because then when I have to to get out or to come down or to try and tie my laces or to try and do anything, the physical side, so there's always one prominently there at the forefront, either the physical or the psychological. There's no breathing space for me within it. There's none.
5: And did did you move house?
7: I did, yeah. Uh, obviously, the the first year for me was well, one of the, the worst years I've ever had in my life. But I'll, I'll be getting to that to that further down the line.
4: Mm.
7: But I did um, go back to to County Longford, and then I I eventually moved here to Sligo. I yeah. wanted a whole new story.
5: And root yourself. And I know Keith wants to support you. You want to start or publicise this campaign you to make sure that when this man, and I know you, you said to us in your communication that, that you mentioned Larry Morphy and you've, you've read about Larry Morphy's crimes and I know there's no hierarchy but you say this man's name should be as well known in Ireland as Larry Morphy because what he did in the hierarchy of savage uh, crimes which Larry Morphy carried out uh, is is uh, beyond beyond comprehensible. You want to make sure he's deported back to Poland.
7: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like there's there's still a, a gap there of 2060 or 2010 to 2015. Yeah. Where nobody knows has he attacked. Nobody knows has he even murdered. We have no idea. Um, but yes, under that um the deportation act um I think it's part uh, section 20 part B. Um, status Story instrument 548, mm-hmm. that, yes, that can be done. And I have heard people say, oh, that doesn't exist, and yes, it does. Like, yeah. when I talk about this, I am talking about somebody who has zero tolerance. Zero. So I have said from the very beginning, I remember talking to Shona O'Rourke back in 2018 about it, mm-hmm. that under that act, what I would like, and I do know that all of the victims and their families, and I know Keith would agree with me on this, you can only deport somebody for a period of time out of an EU member state. So what I had said back in 2017, I would like to see him deported, and for the period of time I would like it to be the collective sentencing that he's given at that final trial, which now turns out to be 34.5 years. So he'll be 59 maybe a little earlier, when he's due for release. And I would like to see the guards put that forward to the Justice Department. But he's deported them for 34.5 years.
0: Ruth Maxwell from Liveline with Joe Duffy. And if any of that conversation affected you, you can find someone to listen at rte.ie slash helplines. And on the Ryan Tubridy Show, the history of Dublin looking at 12 key streets. Ryan was catching up with Three Castles Burning Historian Donald Fallon in the morning.
9: The last time I saw you I was I was run well not quite running, but I was, I was walking fast as I tend to. Was it South Ann Street? It was Duke Street. It was Duke Street Jersey. on Bloomsday. It <laughs> was Bloom <playing> Blooms. <laughs> And you were having a, that nice uh, top of the morning uh, first drink of the day. I was uh, in full
1: regalia. You were. You know, Joyce was a great modernist. I think he'd be disgusted by Bloomsday. <laughs> do
9: you think I was, so? It's all
1: dressing up like it's nineteen oh four and pretending, yeah. but it's a bit of fun. Yeah, yeah I do yeah. it every year. I do I, it every.
9: Year. I, well, it seems to. It's something I've never got involved in, but uh, those who are there seem to thoroughly enjoy the experience. It was nice. It was nice early morning. It's not a like long day. Long day. It's assumed. <laughs> Listen, your your podcast is flying. Three castles burning. Congratulations on that. What are people saying to you about it? Uh, I think the idea of taking the big
1: picture of history, yeah. and every week focusing on a little thing—I think that really appeals to people. And I know this is something you're into too. A lot of people say oh, I'm not interested in history, and it's a battle to convince those people. Actually, you are. Yeah. You know, there's always an aspect of the past you that haven't appeals met to the everyone. right
9: teacher. I say, uh, yeah, and, and that's where you come in because you're a great—not teacher, but well, you are a teacher of sorts. But you've got a, it's access, accessibility. I think is critical for history. Yeah, the idea to
1: make it of a 30-minute dive into a particular aspect of history yes. every week. So the latest one that I'm working on today is about Sam Stevenson, the architect. architect yeah. I love his buildings. I just think they're in the wrong place. <laughs> yeah, Tell me about that. Yeah. You know, the the, uh, the Central Bank. I mean, it's a fantastic building yeah. if it was somewhere else. The Civic offices is some wood key that, you know, so divided public opinion. Yeah. But just to talk about that for, for half an hour, I mean, the Central Bank is back open now. It's Central Plaza. So always trying to find what's happening in the news, what's going on in the city, and then doing that kind of half-hour dive uh,
9: in, into the journey of it. That's, but, that's the job. It, 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 that's what I always say to people. Like, history is, you, you can ne- you'll never be bored. That's one thing I say to if you're interested in history, because every road and every yes, street has a story to tell. I and mean, who's been down it? Who's living on it? Why was that there? What, look at the plaques. Or as a great teacher once said to me, and I'm sure to lots of others listening this morning, look up. Mm. Look up, uh, look look, look beyond the garish, awful signage that somebody allows on a street in your local town or village, and you'll generally see some interesting architecture around the place. So, how do you alight on where to land to with your micro, with your, with magnifying glasses, if you like?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, the great, um, the great philosopher Johnny Mitchell said, "You don't know what you've got till it's gone," yeah, and sure. she was right. And you know, during the, during the pandemic, one of the things that we all really missed was just walking around town and I was lucky enough to live kind of on the periphery of it on on, on the Kimmage Road so I was able to walk through the yeah. south side of Dublin anyway and when I was doing that and the, the streets were, were empty you'd look at things differently when the streets are empty because you know one of the great things about Dublin and Joyce really captured that. It's how everyone bumps into everyone. Yes. You know, you never invite three Dubliners to dinner because two of them aren't talking to each other. You know, the town is kind of like, <laughs> it's kind of like that. But yes. during COVID, the streets were empty. Mm. Uh, and when I was walking around these empty streets, that's when the idea for, that, for this book came into my head. You know, what can these streets tell us? Yes. Who put them there? Who lived on them? Exactly. Uh, some of them are very, very old streets. Going back to the foundation of Dublin. I mean, Fishamble Street. Mm. Great name. Fishamble yeah. means... Fish Market Street, you know, and then going all the way up to like streets in Temple Bar and writing about how that area has changed since the 1970s. So it's a it was a a real chance to look at Dublin in a different way when you had those streets uh, to yourself. It feels like a lifetime ago now, even now. Yeah. And we're only talking the start of this
9: year when these streets were still relatively quiet. God, even as you say it, I I was, you know, I got Lost in the, the, the thought of it and actually the unpleasantness of it. I mean, honestly, it wasn't a nice time, but yeah, people are now doing people are starting to do oral histories of the pandemic, you know. <laughs> I God, still that was fast. I
1: still remember the, the chaos of people in super Value, you know, fighting for toilet roll, but yeah. now it's time for, for oral history. So that's now history, which is extraordinary in itself. Now,
9: I find oral history very interesting because I remember re- researching a book once upon a time, and actually, the oral history was critical for uh, first mm. person. Um, observations and witnesses' uh, statements. And you do need to go in early for an oral history, don't you? You need need to, uh, whatever the event was, in my case, it was in the post-assassination. So they they went straight to all the players and said, so what did you think of him? Where were you? They and what happened there? And in, in post-Covid situation you do need to get to the players fast because history has that awful habit of playing havoc with the truth yeah one of the things like one of the big collections we have
1: the Bureau of Military History where they interviewed people who took part in the revolution but they did it kind of decades later and yeah mem- memory is a funny thing yeah. I mean, people don't remember the beginning of the pandemic in the same way and that's yeah. very recent history so they sit people down decades after an event and get their get their recollections I mean there's seven or eight people who claim they raised the flag over the GPO they couldn't all have done it, he has not made <laughs> but it's, it. it's extraordinary
9: that that happens with memory.
0: And Ryan asked Donal about narrowing his focus to just twelve streets.
9: I assume, as an, an, an enthusiastic history guy, that you had probably about a hundred streets. And yeah, that, yeah. And you had to all in a chart and on some sort of board at home. <laughs> go, how am I going to whittle this down? I said it's quite exciting. Actually. Yeah, and people keep stopping me and saying, "Why isn't this street in it? Oh, Why yeah, is not yeah. that street?" Well, in it? And that volume was volume two. Volume
1: two. Everyone has a favourite street in Dublin. Is that right? Yeah, that's uh, everyone that does. Sense. And I mean, I think when I was when I was writing it, the one that I really wanted to get in there was Moor Street. I just find that a fascinating street yeah, yeah. in terms of the journey that it's come on. It has everything, you know, it's got architectural history, it's got social history in terms of the traders and the great battle that went on there with, you know, Tony Gregory and others for the, mm. the right of those women to trade on the street. And then it has that brilliant kind of migrant story in more recent times. Yes. So there was so much going on on Moor Street. It was like, right, that's definitely getting in. But one that people are really like, where is it? Where is it? It's Capel Street. Yes. Uh, I, didn't, I, I thought there was a book in Capel Street itself. I just couldn't focus in on particular aspects of that story. But yeah, I hope that the selection of 12 streets, that they're they cover everything. You know, we've wrapped mines, which is like the beginning of the suburbs. Yes. It's mad to think that was considered a, a suburb well, once not upon a, a time.
9: As you point out in the book, the, not only a suburb, but one with, uh, you know, a Union Jack waving suburb. Uh, maybe we should talk about that for a yeah, moment. Yeah, the townships in, in the 19th century, <laughs> the yeah. middle class basically abandoned
1: Dublin between the canals and, and, and they move out and establish what they call townships. Mm. So they have their own urban district council, like their own city councils, their own libraries, their own fire service. Everything that makes a city they were doing it for themselves, you know, beyond the canals. Yes. Like their own identity, very political unionist identity. So, you know, Todd Andrews, your grandfather and, and people of that generation, the way they talked about Rat Mines, it was like an alien spaceship, you know, even though it was <laughs> just beyond the canal. And you, yeah. you walk from Portobello into, into Ratmines now, you, you only know you've done it because you've gone over the canal. Yes. But to them, it was like it was a political utterness. Yes. So I wanted Rat Mines to be in there. And how that began Ratmines Road Lower as the centre of a township but the people listening, they'll remember it as bedsit land. Yes. You know, for people who came up from the country, that was the beginning of your, your Dublin existence was Mines Road Lower. So how did it go from being one thing to the other? And that's just an example of, of one of those streets. But what does Mines Road have? Well, it has that beautiful bell tower. You know, the, the city hall, the town yeah. hall, the, yeah. the four-faced liar, the yeah. locals call it. It just doesn't tell the same time in any side. <laughs> uh, and- heard that. <laughs> yeah, it's <was> fantastic. <laughs> that's great. Uh, the Mines Fire Station, where Eamon Macamosh, the historian, oh, yeah. was born in that building. So... Yeah, Mines was a great street to take, and, and again, when I was in Kimmage, it was it was in my five km, so I was constantly walking down and looking at it, looking at it differently.
9: Do You always see that in like uh, in Dublin, particularly around election time, the ward here or the borough there. Yeah, <laughs> you, know, or the, you know, we would be we accustomed to villages and towns right, and constituencies, if you like. Uh, but where did the wards come from, or the boroughs? Did you get into that at all, or was I mean, it all goes back to kind of municipal politics and, and how that's changed over
1: time? And then one of the things I thought was interesting that I didn't know a whole lot about was when they move out, like when they established they their at mines township, bye-bye, you know, we're done with Dublin now. Yeah, That leaves a vacuum between the canals and you end up with kind of interesting people. You know, the Labour Party, the, kind of, the Sinn Féin Party, which is very new in the early 20th century. They're all moving in and they're filling the void and becoming councillors. So the, the battle for control of the city and politics yes. was really interesting. People like Alderman Thomas Kelly, you know, born in a tenement, uh, who became one of the main kind of housing campaigners in Dublin? He could never have become a councillor if it wasn't for at Mines leaving the vacuum for people like him to fill.
9: Okay, so that that, that it had a, a repercussions in a societal yeah, way yeah. as well. Let's talk about some of the, some of the other streets like Watling Street, and and for to, for us to go there. Yeah, uh, you probably have to bring us, particularly for people who who aren't familiar with Dublin or the streets of Dublin. Where are we? Where are we roughly? Yeah, there? Wattling, what? I mean, what, what, what pub are we near? All, all people know about <laughs> Watling
1: Street is that Tim Finnegan lived on Watling Street, you know, in Finnegan's Wake. Yeah. Uh, but Watling Street is right there by the gates of St James's Gate Brewery, and it brings you right down to the Liffey. And I think what people will know about that area of the city, it's the side of the Guinness Brewery. Yes, but that's an area that was full of breweries, full of distilleries. I mean, Dublin was once home to fifty-five breweries. Was it really? Which is amazing. How did and we get a reputation for than, being such a boozy country? More, more than two dozen distilleries. <laughs> really, that so many? How did that exist? How all did back that with
9: IPAs, but yes. Well, yeah, and, yeah. And, and
1: whiskey's back. And whiskey's, whiskey's back, booming. Yeah, for you the sure. liberties as teeling liberties. Uh, Rowan Co., Pierce lines. Like the stilling is really in fashion again. Okay. So that again, sometimes it's the contemporary city that influences the streets I picked. Why is whiskey back in such a big way? How's that happened? And let's look at the history of whiskey. So that's what's going on really on, on Watling Street in a in a it, big way. It, it, this is the street with that strange looking windmill feature. You can yeah. see it from the street. Yeah, yeah, what, it's what, what is that? That's the last remnant of the original Rose Distillery. Okay. And that figure on top is St. Patrick. He's four foot tall. you never, never no, seen it on the ground. Would He's four never foot tall. Yeah. One of the largest smock windmills in Europe in its day. But it's just these weird mm. bits of industrial history yeah. that are still sitting on the streets, reminding us of, of other things. You walk into the back of the National College of Art and Design and there's still whiskey stills from Powers there.
0: And Donal spoke about South William Street.
1: It's kind of dominated by two things. One is, yeah, the Castle Lounge, Grogan's uh, yep. pub. Weird one that it's called, like Joe Grogan, an, an awfully publican. He owned it for a very brief period of time. But that often happens, you know, that the it name... Of, he, just, he just passed through between two other owners. Yeah. But it's, it's Joe Grogan's for everyone. Uh, and when he got the pub, he put an ad in the newspaper saying that he had televisions. As if you're trying to entice people yeah, in, you yeah, know, brand yeah. new TVs. Now, of course, the pub is famous for having no TV. And across the street, the Paris Court Townhouse. Which yeah. is such an amazing building. It's so bizarre um, when you think of it.
9: Yeah. <laughs> when, you know, when you walk into the Paris Court Townhouse, you look at yeah, it. now Only as you say it now, I'm going, what is this? You know, it's yeah, such a
1: strange. It, it's built for, I think, some £80,000. It's the home of a parliamentarian. And then after the act of union, it sold for like fifteen pounds Yeah. So it, it represents the rise and demise of the city. Absolutely, perfectly. Yeah. But I, I love St. William Street. As you said, there's a certain, uh, there's a vibe about it. You know, it's all yeah. at the weekend, it's got a great atmosphere. And again, it was just, it's Victorian Dublin. It's, there's a lot of nice red brick stuff in that area. So the diversity of what Dublin looks like and what Dublin feels like, I hope that I captured as much of that as I could.
9: Um, it, they, it, Texas, I got into three castles burning over lockdown and loved it. I love feeling like I'm aware of these historical events without... Having to have gone into a deep dive of learning to educate myself on them. Well, that's where you come in. You've done all the work. Do you do walking tours at all yourself or is that... Uh, I'm
1: hoping to bring them back, yeah. Oh, I want be, to do, I'd yeah, love to do a walking yeah. tour with you, to be honest with you. Uh, that, that's a lovely text and, and for me the big influence was a, there was a New York podcast called the Bowery Boys okay. and every week they just take something like a theatre in New York yeah. or a history of tattoo shops in New York oh, it check that out. That sounds great. and when I was listening to that even though I haven't been in New York since I was about 14 yeah. I feel like I've walked every street in New York through these guys great. so my, my hope is that people get the same
9: kick from, from Tree Castles Burning and that's a, that's a lovely text oh yeah no, people are a great fan of, the, of, the, of your podcast as am I Paul says I traced my family roots during the lockdown and I found out that my father lived on Watling Street Uh, per his uh, birth cert his parents lived lived there when they came to Dublin from Offaly in 1926, but he never mentioned it. So that's a nice connection this morning. Yes. Uh, Denise says, my mother who was born in 1928 was uh, brought by her dad on Saturdays to Jim Larkin's Fishamble Street office to pay his Union dues. <laughs> and she always spoke so fondly of the giant. And uh, you, pr- you probably know all about that. But uh, Michael Malin Hall on Fishamble Street. Yeah, and there's a picture of it in the book.
1: And Larkin's one of those larger than life figures. He's like a tornado more than a yeah. man, you know. Yeah. And he, he reappears in the book, uh, causing mayhem time and time again.
0: Donal Fallon, the Three Castles Burning the history of Dublin and 12 streets from the Ryan Tupperty Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, food fraud, it's big business, what with global supply chain issues and shortages. But the types of things getting into the food chain is eye opening. Claire was talking to Chris Elliott, Professor of Food Security at Queen's University Belfast.
8: Food fraud, it's an intriguing term, but I think you might need to explain it to us first.
2: Yes, uh, actually, I think in your introduction you you give uh you know it is something that many of us are subjected to but don't don't really know about it. We're we're, we're often uh, in the dark, so it's really where people set out to cheat us deceive us in terms of the food that we buy that can be in supermarkets, cafes, restaurants, and so forth, and and the cheating is often about what we're buying. Isn't what we think we're buying. One of the one of the best examples that I think most people will remember is the horse meat scandal nearly ten years ago, and that's where people set out to cheat us in terms of the of the beef supply chain.
8: And when it comes to the economics of this, it's a pretty lucrative business.
2: Yeah, I mean, first of all, uh, PwC uh, estimated that the the amount of money being made in food fraud annually each year sits somewhere about 40 to 50 billion US dollars and and that's more money than actually is made in the entire heroin trade of the world that that's the scale of the operation
8: Mm -hmm. I, I like this game that you play with your students where you ask them to name a food product and you have to name a scandal linked to that product within 30 seconds and your boast is that you never lose
2: I've been playing this game for quite some time. I will lose it at some point. I do know <laughs> that. But so far, I've got 100% track record.
8: All right. And some of the ones that we can run through now are Honey.
2: Oh, uh, well, that, that's a, a very bad start because there is so much fraud in honey, you would not believe it because there, there is fraud about the honey itself. Often it can just get diluted down with, with common sugars. There's the whole thing about provenance of honey where you, you pay extra money if it came from a particular region, you know, if it's floral honey. There, there, fraud in honey is just rife right, right across the world. So you're off to a bit of a bad start, I'm afraid. But
8: how do we know? that what we're buying is actually honey?
2: And, and and the great difficulty is often we don't. And we as citizens, consumers have to rely upon our food industry. And they do take a lot of efforts to try to stamp out the fraud. But like all forms of fraud, the people who perpetrate it are very clever, very cunning and will try any possible way to deceive us.
8: Mm-hmm. And how do you discover that it is being labelled honey when it's not to use that example
2: Yeah, so, I mean, what what I've been doing for for quite a long time is we use cutting-edge science and technology to really analyse honey and all sorts of other food products. And what we do is we produce a fingerprint, believe it or not, we call them food fingerprints of what honey should really look like and we can compare that using our different scientific tests to find out if it's genuine or potentially fake.
8: They're really simple products that people would not suspect would be sold to them fraudulently, like rice. And you're saying that rice in some cases has plastic added to it? <sighs>
2: Yeah, I mean rice is, you know, the the most commonly eaten food product in the world. You know, two and a half billion people eat rice every day of the week, uh, and and if you think about the rice, we will pay extra money if it's uh, Thai jasmine rice or basmati rice. But one of the frauds that that actually appeared a couple of years ago, there was rumours and, and and all sorts of scandals in different parts of the world. Is actually people were were adding pieces of plastic to 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 bulk out the rice. I, I was never. Never sure if it was true or not until about a year ago. I was actually contacted by a British company who had bought rice on the on the open market, and guess what? It contained plastic.
8: Extraordinary. And then seafood. You found that there are chemicals and water being injected into seafood. What does that do to the seafood?
2: So first of all, in terms of seafood, we actually call it the 11 sins of seafood. There's 11 different ways people will try to cheat and and, and defraud us in terms of the seafood that we buy. The the one that you described is quite common where the the seafood that we buy, particularly frozen fish, will often get injected with water and chemicals just to basically bulk it out so that the the weight of the fish appears much higher than it it, it really is.
0: So that's seafood food, what about herbs and spices?
8: I was thinking about you yesterday <laughs> because I was making Thank today's you. today's dinner yesterday and I have this seasoned salt which I was adding to the dish that I was making and as I was using it I was thinking I have no idea what's what's in that and often when it comes to herbs and spices we are really relying aren't we on uh, what the manufacturers and the retailers tell us <sighs>
2: (sighs) Uh, I mean, herbs and spices, there's more fraud in those commodities than any other commodity in the world. We've been investigating it for a very long time. And again, when you think about uh, take saffron, the world's most expensive uh, spice, it's worth in weight about the same value as gold. It's incredible the amount of money that changes hands. And again, the amount of fraud that goes on in terms of cheating, bulking it out with low-value products, adding things like brick dust to, to, to red, red coloured spices, it can be industrial dyes. Fraud is rife in that very complex and high value uh, international trade.
8: Okay, One of the frauds that I've heard you discuss before is oregano and people will be very familiar with dried oregano. What is added to that to bulk it out and to reduce the cost to the manufacturer?
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we consume a lot of oregano, some what we know about, you know, when you buy the little jar from your supermarket, the 30 grams and you pay one or two euros for it. But actually, oregano is added to so many different types of food, particularly Italian foods. All of our pizzas, lasagnas will we'll have oregano. A lot of the ready meals will have it. And what we uncovered actually was that some very unscrupulous people were taking the oregano and they were bulking it out with other green material, green Leaves. We found things like um, uh, uh, strawberry leaves, we found um, olive leaves, anything that was green and and roughly the same sort of colour as as the oregano itself.
8: But I'm less worried about that than I am about the brick dust and the plastic and the chemicals in the fish, for example.
2: And, and I think that the worry is when people start to add bulking agents to foodstuffs like I just described, actually, you don't know what it is and you don't know how safe it is. But really, that, that there, are, there are cases where food fraud has made people very ill and there's cases where it has killed people. You're mm-hmm. absolutely right. You know, it, it is.
8: Sorry, Chris, for for interrupting you. I, I was going to ask you whether things have changed now and whether you're busier than ever, given what's happening in the world. And I mentioned at the start, climate change and the rising fuel costs and the war in Ukraine. Do you see that things are changing rapidly on the food fraud front and that we should all be more alert?
2: Unfortunately, the answer to that is Yes. There is so much pressure now on the food industry you know, because of the burgeoning costs of, of the raw materials, the ingredients. There, there are unscrupulous people who will try to cut corners. There's no doubt about that. And, and, and we pick up more and more evidence of, of fraud happening. It, and, and actually, it's very difficult for us as consumers to, to, to say what's genuine or not because we have to rely on those people who supply our food to do all of the checkings and inspections that are desperately needed.
8: And I suppose it's one thing if we are buying our ingredients from the supermarket ourselves. If we're buying processed foods, we really are at arm's length from the process. And the ingredients that are be- being put into that processed item, we have no clue where they're coming from or what they are.
2: Uh, absolutely right. And unfortunately, unfortunately, Often, where we buy those food products from, those those companies have no idea about where the ingredients come from either. You know, because our food supply system is really very, very complicated. So many suppliers of so many raw materials and ingredients. So when it comes to a ready meal, you know, I, I often use the pizza as an example. 40 different ingredients coming from maybe 25 different countries. How do you try to track that?
8: And Chris, is a lot of this driven by consumers' expectation that our food should be cheap? You know, we're always looking for for the best deal.
2: I mean, I, I don't think there's any harm in always trying to find, you know, value for money. If we buy something that looks too good to be true in terms of its price, do you know what? It, it probably is. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it, it, it is again about people trying to make money out of us, trying to exploit us in, in, in so many different ways. And we, we many of us are willing to pay extra money if the food is organic, if it comes from a particular geographic region, if it's fair trade. You know, that, that that's absolutely the right thing to do. But will people will try to exploit those as well.
8: And are some parts of the world more susceptible to food fraud than others?
2: Wherever we have looked in the world for fraud, we find it, every single country. Now, those countries that have lower levels of standards, less ability to check, they they will have more problems. There's no doubt about that.
8: Interesting. Everybody is vulnerable. You mentioned the horse meat scandal and you were heavily involved in the investigation of that scandal. What has been learned from that?
2: I think the first thing that was learned about the horse meat scandal is basically don't trust anybody in your supply chain. It doesn't matter how long you bought something f- from them. You've got to check. You've got to inspect. Uh, there, there is food industry is much more aware of how the fraud can happen. And they have put in place a lot of measures to try to, to, to deter the fraudsters. But I just harp back to it. There's so much money to be made, they will look for any possible angle to cheat.
0: Professor Chris Elliott from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ray Darcy show in the afternoon, it was a catch up with writer Michael Harding.
3: Michael Harding, good afternoon. book number 56 Are Uh, you Ray Darcy? I am I'm I'm still Ray Darcy (laughs) I'm in the right place so (laughs) I'd say you're a busy man I was to come into the Ray Darcy show (laughs) that'd be this would it Yeah. (laughs) You could have been tripped up by Brendan O'Connor or Mary McCollum You could be tripped up anywhere (laughs) in this place (laughs) Uh, All the things left unsaid Well can you remember the first time you were in RT to do a radio interview
4: How long ago was that? Ah, Look it would have been it would have been Sunday Miscellany Right I would say like Forty years ago or more. so the, Martha Karen would have been the producer. Right. And I would have been so thrilled. I I was made as a writer. I was on Sunday Miscellany, you know, and um, yeah, that would have been about the very first time. So
3: the, 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 the late 80s, early 90s sort of thing. Oh, I'd say it was
4: late 80s yes, at that time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was earlier. Do you know something? It was about 1984 or 85. Was it? Because at the time she did a little documentary with me and another at the time mad priest right. called Pat O'Brien who's mentioned in the and book and it must be there in the archive somewhere a dialogue between me and O'Brien
3: and what were you talking
4: about we're talking about the church we imagined the, the one that you wanted yeah. as opposed to the one yeah. that existed yeah yeah. I, I mean I'm just thinking I'm just saying that as you ask it it's just coming to my head but it must be there somewhere because I suppose it was it, a great conversation
3: were you part of the generation that was excited by Vatican II and then disappointed by yeah. John Paul II yes yeah, to be fair, we were. And, you know, I'm uh, sure... What, what was the promise of Vatican
4: II? Remind us of that. Well, I'd say there was, there was two things in Vatican II fundamental for me. One would have been that the definition of what the nature of church was said that the Church of Christ subsists within the Catholic Church. And that word subsist, they argued about, like, legally, like, for weeks and months. Right. And uh, the people who wanted a new vision of the church won out because it meant that you were saying officially in a Vatican document that that the idea of what is sacred in the church is not coterminous, completely, identically what is the institution. OK. It They're subsists separate. within it. Right. Right. So was a huge thing. Subsists. Yeah. What's the definition and the other, of subsists? The other idea. Well, it also meant, you see, that you were moving away from a fundamental idea that outside the Roman Catholic Church, there was no salvation. Like, that was a real closed attitude. Like, like, can you believe that yes. that was like...
3: This is the one truth.
4: Yeah. yeah. And uh, th- that was falling away. Like, theologians like Karl Rahner had been doing beautiful books about what he called anonymous Christianity. And, you know, great theologians like Tehard de Chardin and people had talked about the cosmic Christ as a kind of a model for the sense I'm of... I'm going to
3: pull that away for you. Just a little bit. You don't need to be that close. Sorry. Because it seems we're going to be talking for a long time. Just, just of the, of it might be The
4: world people. like that... That it wasn't institutional. What we were talking about in relation to a, having a relationship with Christ wasn't, wasn't sort of tied identically to the institution. Okay. okay,
3: so then John Paul II came along and what happened?
4: Well, I, I think to be fair, um, he reversed the bus into the 19th century. Right, okay. And I think that, you know, I had already started doing plays in the Abbey at that time which itemised the fact that this male institution is falling apart I did a black comedy about... Una Unapuka. Una yeah. I did Misogynist, which yes. was a kind of a me- just a meditation on the quintessential misogyny of the texts. And then I did Sour Grapes, which was a kind of a, you know, a tract, a sort of breakup of, you know, people knowing mm. about child abuse and not saying anything. But, but that was falling apart. Really, I think, because if you tried to create a conservative church, nobody would want to admit that there was something dodgy anywhere. If the boss man was saying to you, you better be running a clean ship, well, you'd like to believe you were running a clean ship. And if there was something problematic, you might like to hide it. Yes, as they did. As they did. Very successfully for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, So, like, what happened was, rather than the church evolve, and maybe institutions actually can't, you know, maybe institutions are not supple enough to actually you know fundamentally change that in some sense each period in history creates institutions that suit
3: it
0: And Ray asked Michael about his spell of bad health
3: You had the, the heart thing and the stent thing and we've talked about that uh, yeah. and I suppose you thought you were out of the woods in a way I know I did I did <laughs> And then, then whoever, whoever you describe it uh, you know, the bad health uh, yeah. monster came running after you on the yeah. beach one day around. Yeah big time Yes Big yeah. time and you've had a rough time of it.
4: I have been in this studio after being depressed. Yes. I've been in this studio <laughs> after colitis, after heart attack. Yes. I thought, every time I thought, well, that's it now. Out you know, I'm out <laughs> of the woods. And now I think I'm never out of the woods. And that's the difference with me. And that's why I wrote that book. And in that sense, it's the most emotional or serious book I've ever written
3: and I said that at the yeah. top it's, it's definitely the most thought provoking yeah. yeah I said that it is, it is of all That's, your books it's
4: the final book <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, like, but don't say that don't let the old man in as, as you, quote, you quote Clint Eastwood uh, in it. I, I just felt
4: you know okay without going into too much of it I was in Bowmount twice yeah. I had serious surgery on an artery that was the artery down your spine that was going completely wrong and the first operation didn't fix it okay and that really was scary. And then they said, we'll try again, go in physically and really go physically through your spine and manipulate the thing and see, can we fix it? Because if we don't, you're going to end up, if you're lucky in a wheelchair, and if you're not lucky, you know, your life will be radically shortened by this. Because it's... it it, you, it your, your body can't sustain the artery sending the blood in the wrong direction. It's just not going to
3: work. Was, was yeah? that because of some sort of tumour or something? Or? No,
4: I mean... I, now, this sounds crazy, but I don't know why. I okay, didn't ask right, them. Okay, right. <laughs> but what you do I know, you, you, it may you... have been gen- it may have been genetic. Okay. It may have been there since you know birth. I and mean, we just something. waiting to yeah, yeah to yeah. bite you in the yeah the,
3: yeah. Uh, and one of the big things is, and it's it's quite symbolic, isn't it? It's it's, it's the you know the catheter and uh, the,
4: yeah, yeah, the yeah. bag of piss. That's, yeah, that that's it. it that's it, a moment, isn't well, it? Well, it was a moment of of kind of crossing a threshold into old age, or just into being fragile as a human being, because you know, we men are precious about our cocks and testicles, if I can say that, I suppose I can. You just said it. A... I'm sorry. Yeah. But we're so precious about that, and you end up in hospital, and you're ill, and you can't function. And I couldn't function mm. after the operation, and so there was a catheter put in, and it was there for about 24 hours, and then they took it out as was normal, and then they said... Um, we just check now that you're able to function. And now everything should be working good. And it wasn't.
6: Yeah.
4: And this was devastation. And I remember the day that the consultant is beside the bed and he's saying to the other people, and it's, the, you know, that way where the consultant is talking, not to you, but oh, to the yeah, other yeah, people yeah, at the yeah, bedside. Yes, yes. And he's saying, well, we leave it in for another seven yes. days. Yeah. And I thought, seven days? You're going to leave this in me, you know, between me legs? And you'd walk down the corridor holding this bag and you i've seen other people and it's like you don't pass any remarks with somebody with a catheter. and why should you there's no no it's reason a medical to thing, yeah. it's a medical thing but psychologically for me it was it was beautiful in its awfulness it kind of it kind of was savage to me to my ego to my sense of my you know i want to always be you know the guy the one and and I'm not really. I'm 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 a sad old fell in the bed, <laughs> you know. And um, yeah. And that was but one of the I, traumas. But it 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 was symbolic that, as I say, it felt like that illness was such a blow, and because I was 69 years of age, and I won't let the old man in. I hope I have another, you know, good few years, yeah. please God. But I really also felt it's wise. It's wise at my age to contemplate the shortness of life. Mm. It's really wise and that's how other people came into my mind who had been taken away, who'd been like snatched out of life. Bernard Lachlan was one from Anna McCarrick but Mary McPartland was a singer yeah. and, and they came to me like I spent my, set, my time alone in this house in Donegal and it was tough because I was only healing. I was on a lot of medicines. I was going to you know,
3: and why did you decide to do that? Was it because, because you had a deadline, or was it no? It reason? was
4: mortality. I, right. I needed spiritual retreat. I really needed, and it was. In what is s-
3: spiritual retreat?
4: It's going to Donegal and being on your own. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs>
3: right. That, that's it's, not a good answer. I'm sorry about that.
4: It's but, going into okay. I give you a better answer. Right. Just go into the, the room within your own heart and close the door. Yeah, and so pray there to your Father who is God, and He will hear you. That's what spiritual retreat means. But it's alone with your thoughts. Okay. It's
3: alone with your thoughts. I know. Ah, no, it? no, no. You,
4: you need to get away from your thoughts. Now. Right. Okay. okay. We're going to have to get ready to move the thoughts, <laughs> what they say, down into the heart. Right. right. So, in the noose, as they say in the Greek, in the noose, that you live in the heart. And in that space, they say that love is another kind of knowing.
0: All the things left unsaid is a new book. Michael Harding from The Radar Sea Show. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.